Hi, this is David Sweet, CEO and founder of Focus Core Japan. And if you were like many of the APAC leaders that I speak to, you're struggling in Japan to find the right talent. You get bombarded with irrelevant resumes or a lack of resumes altogether. I would like to invite you to discover the power of Focus Core's retained search. Let Focus Core help you swiftly secure top tier talent in this candidate short market. I'd like to invite you to shoot me an email and explore how we're different. And with a 100% refundable trial, we can revolutionize your hiring process today. Now on to our podcast. In 2012, when I wanted to think about board roles, the people who spoke about them wouldn't give you any information and they、mm. were women. And so women have changed now that they are more open to sharing. I feel the pie is always getting bigger, it's not getting smaller. So, as a woman, I think it's incumbent on me.、Uh, and I also put that challenge to other women is to open up the doors to more women being able to find the information. It's A very black box, and it's behind a hidden door, even if you get to the door. Good day, and welcome to the Focus Core podcast. I'm exceptionally excited to be here with Catherine O'Connell. Catherine is the principal and founder of her boutique commercial law firm based in Tokyo. Catherine O'Connell Law. She is the first foreign female to set up her own law practice and won Tokyo Foreign Lawyer of the Year Award in 2022, Boutique Law Firm of the Year Award in 2023, and is the recipient of the Entrepreneur of the Year Award in 2020. Significantly, in June 2023, Catherine was appointed as the Independent Audit and Supervisory Board Member of Toyota. Motor Corporation. In June 2022, she was appointed as outside audit and supervisory board member of Fujitsu Limited. Though both of these appointments, she has become the first non Japanese female in Japanese corporate history to serve in this role on any Japanese board. She's also a statutory auditor on ASX listed Japan subsidiary of CSL Bearing. Catherine presides as vice chair of the Australian New Zealand Chamber of Commerce of Japan, is co chair of the Legal Services and IP Committee in the American Chamber of Commerce of Japan, and is immediate past president of NPO Women in Law Japan, which she served for from 2021 to 23. Prior to launching her law practice in 2018, Catherine was head of legal and APAC regional legal counsel for Molex Japan. She held senior in house legal counsel positions for Panasonic, Olympus, and Mitsubishi Motors and has extensive private practice experience at Hogan Lovells and Anderson Lloyd. Catherine earned her Bachelor of Arts in Japanese and Bachelor of Laws at the University of Canterbury. She is a barrister and solicitor of the High Court of New Zealand and solicitor of the Supreme Court of England and Wales. She is a foreign registered lawyer of Japan and member of the Tokyo Daiichi Bar Association. Catherine hosts the award winning Lawyer in Air podcast. 
sharing inspirational stories about women working in law in Japan, and she co-hosts the Jandals in Japan podcasts about successful New Zealand businesses in Japan. And I would recommend uh, to you all to listen to both of those. They're both very well done and entertaining, and I'm exciting to turn the tables on Catherine today. And uh, Catherine believes her purpose is to leave, uh, live, live authentically, be an example of what it means to live a life of passion and substance. Her superpower is changing the boardrooms of traditional Japan from the inside. Through her board coaching programs, Catherine is on a mission to share her live experience, live, lived, live, lived experience to demystify and open the pathways for people to access and attain roles on Japanese corporate boards. And she was an MC for uh, Jennifer Shinkai and David Sweet's book launching uh, of Gus. Welcome, Catherine O'Connell. You have a wonderful pedigree. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much, David. Gosh, you've taken up half the podcast recording with just <laughs> that. <laughs> well, I'm interested to see how you fit all that into a week. Exactly, and have time to sleep and walk and all those things that we do, right? Eating as well. I do that as well. <laughs> with such an exceptional background, why have you chosen to lead a business in Japan specifically? Well, precisely because of the background I've got, I'm here. I chose Japan as my career path, as a, as a natural landing pad, to be honest. Each role I've had has been a stepping stone to Japan. I learned Japanese back in New Zealand. And if you imagine a Venn diagram, I suppose, like one side's law and business and the other is mm, language and cultural skills, then Japan is in the middle for me. Mm. So it's really a natural place to come. Um, I use my language skills in English and Japanese. It's just a perfect combination. Japan is very open to foreigners who are lawyers working here. As long as you check the boxes, tick, tick everything off and abide by the rules, and there are some pretty strong rules, mm. you can have a great time here. Uh, so it's kind of naruhodo. Of course, why would I not be here? It all makes total sense to me. What was the, what, diving into your background, what got you started studying Japanese and to begin with? Right. So um, I left school and thought, what am I going to do? I was didn't go straight to university. Uh, and that's been really a godsend to me in okay. terms of what it did for me as a, a magical kind of sorcery in my life. So I went and studied Japanese. I went off to a, uh, a polytechnic, you know, a trade school, and found out that Japanese was the thing to do. And I really thought about the world of tourism and working as a tour guide. And so I thought, oh, that's a good thing. I'll just learn some Japanese, see how it goes. And I did, in fact, do very well in the, the language classes, loved the culture, because that's part of it. The culture mm -hmm. is so interwoven in the language, unlike English, which is just English, right? Japanese has so many cultural connotations as a language. And so that led me to doing uh, tour guiding as my first career before becoming a lawyer. Uh, and I, I've never looked back. Wow. And then, then what brought you to, to practice, start practicing law? Well, as I was a tour guide, many people who joined that tour, those tours, for example, were uh, honeymooners who were lawyers, and they used to ask so many questions about law that I didn't know about. Oh. So I'm here talking about scenery and sheep and 
exports and things like that. So I went home, studied up on law. And as I studied the law, I thought this is rather interesting. And at the time as well, I also had a, a Japanese male who was a mentor for me. So I now I know, looking back, who said, why don't you just go and do some law study and your Japanese together? It would be a magical combination. So my learning from that is never look past the people who tell you things that you never think about yourself. And so I did that. I went and left the tourism industry and went back and did law um, and then came out as a Japanese-speaking lawyer who could help Japanese people in New Zealand. Awesome. Fast forward, you come to Japan, and then what's one thing about practicing in Japan that you didn't expect? Well, I didn't expect I would practice in Japan first up. <laughs> Never occurred to me. And then, I, as you mentioned, the first foreign female in Tokyo to do that. Uh, and taking that leap in 2018 was something I never truly imagined I would do. I wouldn't have imagined that I'm still the only person who's done that uh, in Tokyo as a foreign female. So come on, where are the rest of you? I know Japan's a very paperwork-laden country, but really didn't imagine how much it would be to register as a lawyer here with all the literally paperwork, like pieces of paper that have to be filed. I think... Um, the other thing that surprised me just how really important this relationship and networking part of Japan is. We hear about it a lot and it gets a little bit like lip service sometimes, but it's absolutely vital to be a successful lawyer in Japan because mm. law here is broken up into so many different parts and they share the work very evenly, which is very Japan. So you've got to have a great network so you can refer someone to someone else. And then they can refer back to you. Yeah, so I would say that's probably it. So, for example, if a client of mine needs uh, a work visa for someone for you who's coming in to do executive, you know, leading as a country manager, for example, they need a work permit. I don't mm. do that. So I have to know the person who can do that. If somebody's firing someone, I need to know the employment lawyer because I don't do that. So Japan has split it up very fairly. And I think that's kind of how it works across Japan, being very fair and team-like. Team so you've got to be a team player here. Uh, and I think the last thing would be staying up to date with oh. my local home country because we still have to qualify each year and build points for continuing mm -hmm. legal education. So finding the courses uh, that can give me that kind of education, ongoing education, and fill the criteria has been a challenge, I have to say. Right. A lot of paperwork, a lot of networking, and then staying up to date. Sounds like a, a typical business owner. <laughs> yeah, it does, <laughs> especially here. What What do you think's been – so I want to talk more around being the first mm. non-Japanese female to set up. I mean, walk me through first the process in your mind going through and doing that and, yeah, and well, deciding to do that. It's right. Why did I do that? I, I think I ticked off a lot of boxes of things I could do in Japan, right? Be in a, a foreigner in a in-house legal counsel in Japanese mm. companies, head offices, be a Japanese company subsidiary running legal department person, working in a law firm that was a foreign law firm that I could do international law experience. So what's left? And I thought, well, you know, this sort of, buzzing, tapping on my shoulder kept happening about why don't you do your own thing? And then I thought, how could that work? But as an in-house experienced lawyer, lawyer who's been inside businesses, helping the logistics team, the quality team, you know, HR, accounting, finance, 
and sitting in the business there. There's nobody really who's done that as their core. Thankfully, you've got that word core behind you so I can call on it. The core as their business model as a lawyer here. And so that's what I ran with. And my process was to go and just talk with a few general counsels and lawyers I know saying, if you had an in-house legal qualified, experienced lawyer, you could call on to just come in and help you a little bit here and there if you're overloaded or you need some sort of part of the work done by somebody. Would that be helpful? And heard it was. Because I'd also experienced that when I was head of legal. I had nobody to go to to ask just for a little bit of work here and there. So that was it. My own inspiration, I suppose, came from the pain point that I suffered And then I went and did the research. You have to do your market research. Why set up a business or do a plan here if you haven't done the research? So that was the first step. And then I took it from there and I had to dabble with a few, can I do it? I can't do it. Going for more corporate roles and feeling not good after those interviews and there was something lacking. So I just went for it, backing myself and knew that the network and those lawyers I'd talked to would give me work and they did. Thank you. So I'm going to ask the question that you just asked. Where where are all these women or Mm. lawyers setting up on their own? Where where are these people? I think they're there. They're just not setting up. It's easy to be, well, I shouldn't say it's easy, but it's hard to be a lawyer in Japan. It's also harder, I suppose, if you've got family and you've got children and other commitments. And perhaps Many people are not very entrepreneurial and just are quite happy to be working in a large corporate. It gives you great prestige and kudos or kudo. Sometimes you say it differently, right? Kudos? Kudos? Yeah, kudos. Yeah. So they're there. There's, you know, over 400 foreign qualified lawyers in Japan registered. There's others who are working in-house who Mm. don't have to be registered. So out of that, you know, there's a certain percentage who are women. They haven't gone out on their own for, I always think about this, why not? But Mm. I think perhaps is the security of staying in a, as an employee in a company uh, or in a law firm that may be there, the way that keeps them anchored there. Whereas I was quite happy to, with financial backing that I had and my savings and things like that, to think what's the worst that could happen? If I doesn't work, I can at least say I tried and I Mm. can be back in an employee position. So they're there, David, but they maybe are, for various reasons, not taking that leap. It takes quite a lot of guts to do that. Yeah. And having set up uh, three companies in service, it's it's a challenge when you're – you set up and if you're the one that's executing the service as well as selling the service, then you – get the project, and then you have to execute it so you're not selling anymore. That's right. And and I think a lot of professionals, whether they be legal or uh, fine accounting or uh, HR, it's very difficult for them to sell. Exactly. It's that (laughs) being in the business and being on the business, right? On the business doing the sales, in the business doing the work. So I have a team of contracted Japanese lawyers who do the work for me now and I'm more of an overseer I choose selected clients and I know a couple might be listening today and I work with them because I want to work with them they're so delightful and I've I choose the people now I want to to work with so most of the work though that I do in my law firm now is 
managed by other contractors that I have, which is the way I wanted to run this business. But again, um, I never knew that it would work out that way. It was my vision uh, and it's come to fruition, which is really great. It alleviates me to go and do the sales. That's great. And and you're very good at that. How, how have you positioned your firm to provide, you know, flexible legal secundum, 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 I'm going to get this out today and try not to get condoms in there. Secondiments <laughs> to in-house legal teams and business owners. Exactly. I do flexible <laughs> legal secondments, I think you're trying to say. Well, no one else is doing this. I thought originally, what could I do? And I told you about that. To be the extension of the business team. When they mm. don't have a lawyer, I can pretend or they can pretend that I am sitting in their team as a, the, the in-house legal counsel. So that's what I am in-house legal counsel for them so mm -hmm. the team's loaded up they've got the tight deadlines they need someone to come in then i can be that person also i've been approached by many apac regional council mm. who might be based in say australia or in singapore and they don't have a lawyer on the ground in tokyo or in japan but they have massive operations here so they and then they're also sometimes faced with not being able to have a budget or having an inclination to get a full-time person here because the work might be quite a bit but not enough to substantiate that so i fit that niche as well where i can help them for three hours a week or five hours a month or whatever they might have and so that's why it's flexible mm. to fit the, what they need and their needs and fits me too because I can work everybody around. So I'll slot into David's work today for three hours, log out. I'll do another company's work, log out, or have my other uh, lawyers do that for me. So nobody else is doing that here. Hence, it's a great model. Yeah. Uh, you've got to really have it worked out very carefully how you do it within the, the Ministry of Justice's rules and laws. But you can do it. It just takes time to do it and work things out, as you would know with businesses you're from. You can do that. So that's the sort of thing that I do mm. is help people who may not have a, a lawyer that they can call on, but they run businesses here. That's excellent. I mean, I imagine just uh, as a business owner myself, in terms of uh, cost savings and tailored support, it's a, a fantastic way to, to operate. Oh, it's great. And it gives you such flexibility, right? I can carve out the white space in my calendar and take on the work as I need to or, or outsource it to my, my trusted team. Let's let's move into something you're very passionate about, which is board governance, um, and talk a little bit around board governance in Japan. I, I listened to a wonderful podcast that you had uh, with um, uh, Ken Siegel, and you were chatting yes. about the shortage of women on boards, and right. that seemed to be the fascinating to me as well because it's it's timely and it seems. You see, turn on NHK and they're talking about that quite a bit. So talk around that as well, please. Well, they're talking a lot about it on NHK and other programs now because Japan is on a mandate uh, mm. from the government to reach 30% of women on boards by 2030, and it's a massive thing to do. I collected some stats for you, David, and I'm hoping that you and your firm can help us out with this 30% uh, because... Uh, Nikkei X woman did a survey in September in 2023, and they found out that board members, so board members being internal directors, external directors, but not auditors, corporate auditors like me, as at September last year, 16.5% were women. 
So that means out of 5,080 board members working in the top 500 listed companies on Prime Market, 845 are female only. Hmm. Right. So that's only 16.5%. That is up 2.5% uh, points from July last year. So it's July 2022, I'm sorry. So it's moving. In terms of board members, I owe some stats to Naomi Koshi, who was one of my I guess uh, yeah. she's with on board and they said, well, they say that outside women directors are now only 10% in the listed companies, 10%. So 10 and we've got to get to 30 by in five years. Uh, on board also said the number of foreign women board members is 2% in large companies, but actually only 1% for all companies. Those are massive stats. So that is why, uh, so lagging behind the States and the UK and Australia, New Zealand, for example, and that's exactly where Ken was able to say it's atrocious. So he, he knew because he's coming from an, an American background as well and lived in Japan for a very long time, right? That's amazing. But what surprised me about these statistics they put through is that a human resources giant, shall we say, have you heard of DIP, D-I-P? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, DIP actually has the highest number of female board members in all companies in Japan. Uh, they've got five members now. They've increased their total board members from eight to nine. Uh, and their board members accounted for 55% then of all the members. And five members that I mentioned are all outside women directors. So mm. DIP is there. There's a few other companies we know, such as Sony, Lawson, uh, Lixel, even Japan Post is up there, strangely. But those were really good statistics, so I owe a lot to NetGAX for putting those out. We have a long way to go, though. Happy to share those statistics later with you as well. That's great. Put them in the show notes because I think that's quite interesting. So uh, in your opinion, what do you think is hindering us from being further along and how are we going to get that hit that in 2030? Yeah, so to make a more diverse board, I think, right, it's it's such a big commitment. But I think they need to broaden the slate. Companies need to broaden the slate and make it more diverse. We do hear companies say they can't find anybody, right, where are the women? But they're, you know, it's half the population. And then there's that 1% of females who are foreign, you know, bring them in. Perhaps they don't all understand or speak or read Japanese. That can be a bit of a barrier, but it's not insurmountable because we have AI translations. We have human translations, we have honyaku translations or tsuyaku, right, um, interpretation. So don't let that be a barrier to getting more foreign women. Uh, and let's also look more globally. There's lots of, for example, women from the States, New Zealand have got amazing governance structures and training. And with things the way they have been since the, the pandemic with people being able to join online, not always, obviously need to travel to Japan here and there. Why not have somebody who's also perhaps not based in Japan who could be a support? So I think we're not looking far and wide enough. Uh, broaden that network outreach. Um, encourage members who are on the board to tap into all kinds of different networks that maybe they're not doing that with now. And have a diverse committee. You know, the nominations committee mm. with inside the company also needs to be diverse. So pull in people pulling women uh, and male allies within the company who can help with that. 
as well um, and establish those clear diversity goals. And maybe some companies are, are doing it as a checklist kind of attitude, but perhaps make that a bit more uh, mm. substantial and make the, that recruitment process very, very clear so that com- people want to join. Who would know that they could join DIP and be part of an amazing progressive company? It was news to me. Share those great stories. Where's yeah. DIP's story out there, right? So I thought that was really amazing um, for them, but, you know, very practical things that people can do, I think. Are there unique challenges for you as a foreign female auditor in Japan? Ooh, I would say that I'm the only one. <laughs> but, you know, I just, you know, That's I just unique. I just do my job and I don't really think about gender so much, but at times though I do bring in the eye of the female there, perhaps I call out mm, some unconscious bias that might be there, but more often than not I'm bringing out that entrepreneur view or the foreigner view or my expertise, the compliance, legal and you know risk uh, mm. experience that I've got. But unique challenges, I'm not sure. I mean, I think – they treat me as one of the boys. I will just say it like that, one of the team. They treat me like that, so I act like that. So I don't find it a challenge, but I think if I didn't have Japanese language fluency, mm. that would have been a massive challenge. But my hope is and my message is that more women and foreign women take up this role as a, an outside statutory auditor. It's sometimes perhaps compared to an outside director, mm. maybe thought of less, less glamorous, I would even go as far as saying some people may consider it's a kind of Cinderella role, but we all know that Cinderella got to go to the ball and we all know that she met her Prince Charming. And I would tell you that my roles as a statutory auditor on the board for these two big companies and the smaller company are like my glass slipper. Mm. They fit perfectly. You get to know more about the company than you do as a director because you are on two boards, board Mm -hmm. of directors and the other advisory, supervisory um, board. So it's a really interesting role. And I think it's the underdog. Uh, And, you know, I quite like being the underdog and surprising people. And and this is one way to do it. So I encourage more to try this. That's great. You've you've talked about how companies can bring in more diversity to their boards around you know recruitment and diversifying the recruitment process and the selection committee i think the flip side is more is also very interesting is how can more women leaders find their way to these positions because i would imagine that there's a lot of self-doubt or questioning or say well i don't know how to do it or i've never done this talk around that absolutely I mean, in 2012, when I wanted to think about board roles, the people who spoke about them wouldn't give you any information, and they Mm. were women. And so women have changed now that they are more open to sharing. I feel the pie is always getting bigger. It's not getting smaller. So as a woman, I think it's incumbent on me, uh, and I also put that challenge to other women, is to open up the doors to more women, being able to find the information. It's a very black box and it's behind a hidden door, even mm. if you get to the door. So that's the key point is being able to find the doors to open by finding the people, finding your people who can help you. So I would say make friends with board members and not friends that is f- fake friends. Mm-hmm. Become really good 
support people for the people who are on boards, how you can help them and they will remember you. Make friends with people who are choosing people for board roles. Yourself, David, you know, become familiar with you. Don't just come to you Mm. as an expert in hiring executives when we need it. Build a relationship with you Mm. uh, before is needed. Understand that you are always interviewing. This is the thing I find absolutely fascinating is that anyone who's in a meeting with me, who is at a networking event, who is sitting next to me in, say, a panel or somewhere in the audience who asks a question, you are also always interviewing, would I want to work with that person? Would I suggest that person when it comes around the board table that we need to find candidates for next year or the year after's slate? Be very visible. I know Mm. the peacock is a very visible male, right? But be like that. Show your coloured feathers. Not too much because the peacock only shows it at certain times. So be like a peacock and just be very visible as well. Um, And I think for people who have perhaps listening today, if Mm. someone's there and they don't tap on your shoulder or mine and say, hey, David, I heard you talk with Catherine. Can I ask you a bit more about executive roles? Or Catherine, I heard you being interviewed by David. Can I have a couple of minutes with Mm. you? Right, so reach out. Don't be sitting there and waiting for it. Know that you're always being interviewed, and and hang out where the men are, because the men are making the decisions. And from my very <laughs> big experience, I can say uh, success comes from having healthy male people in your network, and not just joining women networks, which are great. But go where all those guys are as well. Fantastic, thank you. I know you've talked in uh, some of your own podcasts about. Um, positive male role models and allies that you've had in your life that have helped. And it's wonderful. I've worked with um, doing executive coaching. And one of the big things for people legal or in finance, HR, these are experts in their field and they have great hard skills, but then they forget to go out and network and build up those bridges outside of their their skill set to be able to expand what they already do. Yeah. And uh, that's huge. Exactly. Let's talk about, you know, you have a wonderful experience. You've got 30 years plus experience. And I'm only 12. I know it. <laughs> you moved over very early. Yeah. <laughs> Bilingual Kiwi lawyer. What What's the biggest challenge you're facing in your role right now and how are you tackling it? Yeah, I think that's a really good question because a lot of people might look at me and see that long CV you called out at the beginning and there's nothing really much on Catherine's plate that she must be struggling with. But mm. exactly that. There's so many things on my plate. I get many invitations to do many things and that's my challenge right now is to only – Focus, thank you for having that word in your name. What a brilliant name for your company. Uh, Focus on the things that are enriching, that are going to give me Mm. my personal development uh, and help me identify maybe new skills or areas that I can help people. So all signs for me as my challenge are pointing to this ultra, ultra focused focus. Uh, So that's what I'm tackling, Um, and that's why I've actually adopted the word of the year for me this year. Uh, Surprisingly, is play. Now, play may not seem like focus. It might seem like being flitting across different flowers and buzzing around, but actually it's very 
mostly focused on choosing Mm. things I want to do that infuse elements of play that make it very interesting for me and creative and engaging environment. So that's my challenge. And I'm looking forward to being more playful this year and bringing that into the serious work roles that I have uh, and injecting more enjoyment into them. And I've certainly been focused on that in the last couple of weeks, especially and noticed the difference that it makes in the environment in the room as well. Hmm. So that's my challenge. Maybe not what you thought, but uh, yeah. I love it. I, I love the image of playing. That's because to my mind, no one has better focus than someone who's playing. If you see a child who's playing and you, you, you say, oh, hey, Catherine, Catherine, and she's playing, she's oblivious to everything else in the world because it's just that. I love that image. Oh, I love what you just said. I'm jotting down a quick note. But I also got some inspiration from, J- from James Clear, and I don't know if we've got enough time to go into that. He's one of my gurus. Have we got time for me? Sure, to yes. Well, you know he's the amazing author of Atomic Habits, but he wrote recently, imagine all your responsibilities and obligations would vanish overnight. What would you miss doing? Mm. And what would you choose to add back into your life? And I think that's a really good process to go through. I sat and pondered that and found that actually those things I missed doing would be the things I added back into my life. And I think that's what he did it for. But you know, start with a clean slate and bring in what you want to do rather than have a busy, busy, busy schedule and try and take things out. So he may not have thought about the women that have to do a lot of work in the in the households or pick up their children or make or bend to at 5 a.m., but he's talking probably about work situations perhaps, mm. but he does say all obligations. But I thought that was really interesting for me because for me that was really boom. I found what I needed to do to think about focus to bring my best gifts into the world in the way that I want to. Yeah. I, I like how you <laughs> you highlight a little bit on a footnote that he might not have had working women in mind. Mm-hmm. I, I always remember my wife labeling my son's pencils in school. So having to have yes. not every single pencil in my in their case labeled with their names on it now that's a laborious process and if you're a working mother who also has to you know cook and and maybe do something else um yeah and then it's just very very challenging it is and everything else is labeled right the bags Mm -hmm. the clothing they wear everything's got a name label on but i guess you can see in a way the other side of it why they do that because if it's lost they don't have to spend time going down some rabbit hole to find out whose pencil it is because Japan loves to return lost objects to people. Oh, it's, which is so wonderful. you can see where it kind of ties in there. But, yeah, let's give some shout-out to the women who probably can't do quite the same process as James Clear is, is saying. Uh, yeah. Some things can't go, but I think there is certainly some magic in that that particular process. My, uh, my phrase that I've been pondering on the same note as that is, Love it or leave it. Love it or leave it. Mm. And uh, that's, that's a better way than saying hell yes, isn't it? I, think <laughs> I like that. Love it or leave it. Okay. What's the, what's the most important lesson you've learned in your career? Oh, such a good question. I asked this to many people on my podcast yeah. where on air, and I, it's funny to have the mic turned back on me. 
But what always comes up for me is that about failures. Opposite of success is failures, or the opposite of failures is success. And I think, no, failures is definitely an integral part of success, Mm. not the opposite. And I think that's been my learning is that the things that haven't gone well in my career, and it hasn't all been roses to people who think looking at that uh, chart that you talked about, that it is. Of course, Mm. leaving one position in the past was initially challenging, but I can see that that was a stepping stone to the next step, to the next step, to the next step. So things can be quite painful at the time and really, really demoralizing and debilitating that you've been, you think you're going through a failure or a setback, but there's so much towards those things that, for example, pushed me or nudged me towards Mm. entrepreneurship and to where I am now with these personal and professional rewards that are beyond perhaps in the past what it was. I think too that part of that is that you, if you're a sort of round shape, don't try and force yourself into being a square shape. Mm-hmm. And often the square shape might give you more uh, prestige or more money, but it can be so draining and demoralizing again. I'll use that word. So finding your round, if you're a round shape, and going for your authentic self is much better, I think, in the end, at the end than trying to be forced into something else for the sake of money. So those are a couple of learnings for me. I love that. I I would highlight the authentic self because we're the humankind only has one chance at you. And if you're not the authentic, we've lost that one chance to be. And if you think of all the people that have ever lived or ever will live and the people walking down the street are the only ones ever that are yeah. there. You, it, it, you have to be authentic. Yeah, they so. say, don't they? Be yourself. Everyone else is taken. <laughs> so uh, let's let's get into some closing questions. Uh, now that we've gone down a, a deep rabbit hole of philosophy, um, <laughs> love it. What what would you like to ask the next guest on the Focus Core podcast? I love this question, and I'm going to steal it for my podcast. Yeah. So look out, guests, but. I'm thinking a lot about collaboration and co-creation right now. So I'd like you to ask your next guest this question. If you could collaborate with anyone, living or deceased, Mm. on what project or idea would you do that? Who would it be? And what would you hope to create together? And part of this question comes from the co-collaboration and co-creation that you had with Jennifer Shinkai. Mm -hmm. And that you produced the book that was beautifully illustrated and your words were coming alive on the page. So that would be my question. But I'm dying to know what the question was that your last guest said. Or is this a new question you've brought up for today? So, no, this is uh, my last guest asked you, what do you see as your out- the outlook for 2024, 2025 in terms of Japan? Ooh. Oh, I see. That. Now it's coming. 2024, 2025 for Japan. I think mm. Japan's going to turn a corner. It's been a little bit downtrodden. Uh, we've got a bit of a, a shifty government with, you know, things that they're doing with kickbacks and stuff like that with infections that seem to have been just overnight made to go away. But aside from the political side of things, I just think Japan is coming up and up again. It's really regaining its spot on the world. Uh, it did that in Hiroshima with the G7. It started to actually take 
its place in the world. Mm. So I think Japan's going to be moving further and further up. And I think the only thing that's going to be better is um, those stats we talked about before, I think we'll see a big shift, 24, 25, into more women on boards and more women doing uh, business and leadership as well. So I think it's – I've got a very positive view about 24, 25. I can't wait for it to unfold. That's awesome. Yeah, fingers crossed for that. Um, I have a couple of questions. I know one that I'll ask you, but uh, listening to your podcast, you always ask every guest where they would go and have their favorite beverage. And uh, I don't know, maybe you've answered this on a podcast I haven't listened to. I have, I think, um, but I move it every time. So I, I need to find out where, I, I, I think you would order champagne, right? Is it's what true, I heard. exactly. Yeah. Uh, my first go-to was always Apero. Okay. I love the uh, addition bar at Toronto Mom as well. However, my latest is the Hotel Indigo in Shibuya. It's super funky. They've got an amazing restaurant with mm-hmm. a super, super great cook who's Italian. The food is exquisite. Uh, the surroundings and the decor is out of this world. I've never seen anybody do anything with the decor that they've done there. Mm-hmm. It's managed by a wonderful woman, Rebecca, who's actually a New Zealander. Uh, she's the only female hotel manager in Tokyo. Really? Yeah. And she does it well. She rocks it. So she's actually looking for people to go and work there. Uh, uh, and she's short of staff. But they are the best. So please go and see them. And I would definitely be ordering the uh, champagne. Or they've got a really ro- lovely New Zealand rosé there as well, which is coming up as my second go-to these days. Nice. Good question. Uh-huh. Wow, I saw it from you, so it must be. <laughs> well, we'll, hotel and go. we'll put a link in the notes and uh, – Thank we you. might have to have her on the show and see where oh, it's uh, some recruitment going her way. Absolutely. What should I have asked you, Catherine, that I didn't know enough to ask? Uh, maybe how I balance this work and everything I do. What is my balancing act? You didn't ask me that. How I navigate What's balancing my work act? In life. What you just said, love it or leave it do what I love and the rest is gone. And I think having people to help me, there's no way I could do my podcast without podcasts without Jane Nakata. Uh, she's the, the, the Huge shout out to Jane. Yeah. Award-winning podcast manager, uh, strategist, everything. She does that work for me. So I just show up uh, and she makes me look good. So that's one thing. Keeping really careful about, we talked about uh, where I'd go for a beverage, but making it very moderate, mm-hmm. being very careful about uh, centering on health and gut health in particular. Uh, the other thing you didn't ask me is how I lost 20 kilograms in the last five years, but that's been because of concentrating on health and gradual attention to getting back on, on keel. Uh, so that would be something that um, I think is actually underlines everything without the health and not getting influenza, not getting colds. Yes, I got COVID once. But having a very good, healthy life leads me to have the vigor. And today's word for me is vitality, that vitality to do what I do and do it with genuine passion. I wouldn't replace my life for anything right now, David. I love it. That's wonderful. Fantastic. What a great way to to end the podcast and in your vitality and health and everything that you bring to Japan, the leadership, 
that you give in the professional and uh, in private. It's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so lucky to have you here today. Thank you, David. It's been wonderful to chat. And there we go. I'm doing the uptown low down, yeah.